You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. If you need a Bible this morning, go ahead and raise your hands. Uh, we've got some ushers and greeters who'd be happy to pass those out, and it'll be a lot more enjoyable with you if you can go through the text as we're reading through the scriptures. Well, this morning we are in Matthew chapter 26, verses 31 through 35. It's a shorter passage, just a few verses. Um, but there's so much depth and rich material to cover in these verses that I don't want you to get too excited that you're getting out of here at 1130. Um, to catch you up with where we are, if you're new, we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and now we are towards the end of Jesus' earthly life. In the lifeline of Jesus, this is Thursday, he gets crucified on Friday. We are on Thursday, and last week Pastor Dave covered the Last Supper. We looked at uh, Jesus instituting the First Communion, and we really kind of honed in on a genuine relationship with God does not come from hyper-spirituality, but from humility. A genuine relationship with God does not come from hyper-spirituality, but instead humility. And it's pretty incredible to think about the tension that Jesus must have been feeling. He knows that he's going to the cross. He knows that his disciples are going to walk away from him. He knows that the Jewish people are going to cry out for his death and execution. And yet in the midst of everything, all that pressure, he takes the time to sit down with his disciples to celebrate the Passover meal. And he does this because he loves them and because he's meeting them where they are in order to lead them to where they need to be. And they're nowhere near where they need to be, much like us. And yet that's the beauty of our Savior is he meets us where we are in order to say, hey, let's move forward. Let's move forward. Let's move forward in our faith. And as Jesus is finishing the Last Supper, it says that they sing a hymn and we get to this point in verses 31 through 35, Matthew chapter 26. And this is what the text tells us after the Last Supper occurred. Then Jesus said to them, meaning his disciples, all, everybody say all, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered and said to him, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, that this night before the rooster crows, you, Peter, will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said who? All the disciples. It amazes me. When we look at this story, the details that we get in Matthew and in the other Gospels. As a matter of fact, Matthew, Mark, and John have pretty much a verbatim 
story in regards to what Jesus said to Peter. But Luke gives us a little bit more insight in between the Last Supper and then this conversation with Peter. It says in Luke 22 that as the disciples and Jesus are leaving the upper room and headed to the Garden of Gethsemane, it says that they sing a hymn. But then also there happens to be this conversation. And does anybody happen to know what this conversation was about? Who is the greatest? Who's the CEO of the group? Who's the best looking? Who's the most athletic? Who's Jesus going to choose to anoint as his right hand guy? And when you start to unpack what's going on, it's almost mind blowing, right? I mean, goodness, Jesus just sat down with his disciples and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is my blood shed for you, the cup of the new covenant. When you drink of it, do this in remembrance of me. Guys, I'm going to the cross. I am the once and for all sacrificial land that the Old Testament has been pointing to. And when they finish, the disciples go, so who do you think he's going to (laughs) pick? Now, from where we sit, as really good Christian people, we laugh or we go, oh my gosh, what a bunch of boneheads. But am I really any different? How many times am I reminded of God's grace and all I can think about is myself, my wants, my desires, my comfort. What am I going to get next? When do I get a vacation? When do I fill in the blank? And we start to understand that as we read this passage, which is primarily interaction between Jesus and Peter, Peter is just a testimony of who we are. He's a testimony of the things that we think and the ways that we live. And that's the beauty of the scriptures. It speaks right to our hearts of goodness. I'm no better than Peter is. And what I love about this is spiritual growth comes by grace, not by merit. Spiritual growth comes by grace, not by merit. Notice the order in which Jesus does this. He establishes communion, the first communion with his disciples. It's his grace poured out. It's this thing that he establishes, this sacrament that says, every time you do this, remember what this is for. And he establishes his grace knowing that his disciples are going to bail on him, that they're going to run from him, that they're going to deny him. And it's by grace that we grow spiritually. It's by grace that Peter would grow spiritually. It's not by merit. And we'll see throughout this passage, Peter is kind of all about merit. Maybe not intentionally all the time, but oftentimes good intention still means bad theology and we're held accountable, right? Peter is all about proving or earning. And I titled this sermon, Prone to Self-Sufficiency. Prone to self-sufficiency. When I look at my own life, how many times a week do I go through my day and I get to the end of my day and I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't know if I included God in any of that. And guys, I'm a pastor. I'm in prayer, I'm in this, and so often I can find myself doing things in my own strength or finding common things where it's like, hey, I already know how to do this, therefore off I go and... I do, and 
How many of you come to the end of your week and you go, goodness, I didn't, I didn't include God in anything I was doing this week. I wasn't desperate for him. I wasn't seeking him. I was just relying on myself, that self-sufficiency. And in verse 31, Jesus tells the disciples, he says to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. If you think about what Jesus is saying, they're on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane and he brings up what I would think would be a pretty sensitive subject. He goes, hey, all of you are going to abandon me tonight. Now let's put this into context. How long has Jesus' disciples been with him? Three years. And it's not like three years of showing up to a nine to five. It's three years of life on life discipleship, being with him wherever they go. And if I was one of the disciples, here would be my thought process. You're going to say that to me after I've been with you for three years? After I left my successful fishing business or my tax collecting or whatever it was to be with you and to be poor most of the time? Jesus, I've seen your miracles. I've heard you teach the word. I know who you are. I love you. I'm not going to abandon you. Our walls and defenses would certainly go up. I think of my time here at the Mission Church. I've been here for almost three years. And I think about if someone came to me and challenged my commitment to the Mission Church, what might my response be? Are you kidding me? Are you serious? Do you know how many hours I put in? Do you know how much sacrifice I make? Do you know, and what's the problem with all of that? Me, me, me. I, I, I. And what is Peter doing? Oh, we see that he's trying to grow spiritually through merit, not according to what Christ has done. And it's an easy trap to fall into because the reality is, do you work hard? Probably many of you do. Are you passionate about what you do as a husband or a wife or in your job or whatever it is? Yeah, probably. But if it comes down to what we do instead of what Christ has done, we find ourselves in this works-based salvation. We find ourselves trying to earn or prove based on our self-sufficiency. I can do this. I can figure this out. Now, Jesus isn't just unnecessarily calling these guys out, right? He's not just saying this to get a rise out of them. He gives them a specific reason. He says, hey, all of you are going to fall short. All of you are going to trip up. All of you are going to deny me tonight. And here's why. He says, for it is written. When Jesus says, for it is written, what is he referring to? He's always referring back to scripture or to prophecy from the Old Testament. Specifically, Jesus is referencing Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. And Jesus quotes and says, I will strike the shepherd. This is God speaking. Who is the shepherd? The shepherd is Jesus. And the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Who are the sheep of the flock? It's his disciples. And Jesus is going, hey, I know the scriptures and this is what's going to happen. This is what's been foretold. And what's amazing about this passage is who's the one striking the shepherd? 
Say that louder, whoever just said it. God. It's God who's striking the shepherd. You mean to tell me that this was his plan all along? Was for his son to be crucified and killed? Yes. That is what God had decided. Jesus knew the prophecy. He knew the word. And here's what I love, that Jesus is teaching his disciples, and not only his disciples, but also to us. Is that when you know God's word, it reveals God's will. When you know God's word, it reveals God's will. Jesus, even though he was fully God, he was also what? Fully man, which means he grew in the knowledge of God's word. He had no sin in his life, but he did grow, humanly speaking. He studied the scriptures. He read the prophets. He was well-versed in the Old Testament. And because Jesus knew God's word, Jesus also knew God's will for his life. Isaiah 53.10 would have been another scripture that Jesus would have known well. Let's read this all together. It's here on your screens. It was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. Did Jesus know he was going to be crucified? Yes, he did. It was not a surprise to him. Did he know that he would be buried in the grave because he would be dead? Yes, he did. Did he also know that he would be raised to new life through the power of God? He did. How did Jesus know this? Because he knew what? He knew God's word. Now, some people might go, well, that's cheating, JC, because Jesus is God. If you want to call Jesus a cheater, you go on ahead. That's up to you. Um, Jesus knew God's word. And we see this over and over again in his own life. Think about when Jesus was baptized by his cousin John. The spirit comes down, descends upon him like a dove. And God affirms who he is, affirms his identity. This is my dearly loved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And then Jesus immediately is led by the spirit where? Into the wilderness where he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. How many of you have fasted intentionally or unintentionally just for one day? How's your hangriness after one day? <laughs> Not really excellent, right? Um, think about at the end of 40 days without food, you are pretty much on death's doorstep. There's not much left of you. He would have been starving, literally. And Satan comes to tempt Jesus. And that first temptation is, hey, Jesus, there's a lot of rocks in this place. Why don't you turn some of them into bread so that you can have some food? And what is Jesus' response to Satan? It's scripture. It's the word. Because Jesus knows God's word, therefore Jesus also knows what? God's will. And Jesus responds, hey, man does not live by bread alone, but every, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And on the surface, it just likes, hey, this is a food issue, but underneath the surface, God is revealing his will of son, Jesus, I will provide for you. I will give you what you need in due time. You don't have to rely on yourself to do this. And Jesus 
doesn't rely on self-sufficiency. He trusts God to meet him and minister to him when it's time. That second temptation, right? Jesus is tempted to jump off the Temple Mount, and then Satan quotes the book of Psalm and says, hey, if you throw yourself off, it's prophesied that the angels will protect you and they have to bear you up. And Jesus says, hey, don't tempt the Lord your God. Where did that come from? It came from God's word, Deuteronomy. And then the third temptation, Satan takes him up to a high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world. I believe that would have been all the kingdoms, past, present, and future, and says, I will give this all to you. Look at all the genocide that you could stop. Look at all the murder that you could stop. If you just what? If you bow to me. And what is Jesus' response? It's scripture again. It's Deuteronomy again. It's you shall not worship anyone but the Lord your God. And Satan departs from him and angels come and minister to Jesus. Because Jesus knew God's word, he also understood God's will for his life in that very moment and then even beyond. Now sometimes when I think about God's will, how many of you have ever asked the question, God, what do you want me to do with this? And you fill in the blank. Two of you. Okay, cool. We'll move on. How many of you have ever asked that question? Yeah, probably most of us have. And sometimes God may reveal the details of that, but in general, we get a heart understanding of what his will for our life is. And through God's word, we better understand what God's will is. And I just wanted to walk us through maybe a practical example of what this looks like, that God's word reveals God's will. So keep your finger on Matthew 26, but I want you to turn toward the back of your Bible, and let's go to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. If you're there, give me a big amen. amen. James chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Or excuse me, 7 through 10. James 4, 7 through 10. Verse 7 says, therefore, submit to God. Well, anytime there's a therefore, what do we have to do? We have to go back and find out what it's there for. So now we go to verse 6. And God is quoted by saying, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's what the therefore is. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So what might we be learning about in this passage we're about to cover? Humility. 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 Now here's what I'll say about humility before we get back into James chapter 4. Humility is not something we can do. Humility is something that we are. Or humbleness comes from who we are, not what we do. We're going to unpack that in this passage here in James. Verse 7 says, Therefore submit to God. Resist the devil and what? He will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. 
Well, how does it that if I know God's word, then I can understand God's will for my life? Now, this is just one section of scripture. This isn't going to have the answer for everything, but this has helped me tremendously in my own life. Think about what James is saying here. He says, therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So there's a promise here. In God's word, what does it say about our interaction with Satan or with sin? If you resist, then what must happen? Satan has to flee from you, right? Now, if we know God's word... And let's say we get into a circumstance where, hey, there's this opportunity for me to make some money, even though it's cutting a small corner. Well, if I know God's word, what can I know about this circumstance or this financial situation? It's not God's will. Why is it not God's will? Because it doesn't line up with scripture. Now, I may go, but Lord, you know my circumstances. You know that I'm in a really hard financial spot. Isn't this your blessing? Aren't you providing a way for me to make up that difference so that I can pay this off or I can do this or whatever it is? Is that a genuine argument? Yeah. <laughs> I know we're sitting in church. <laughs> is it a genuine argument? Yeah, it kind of is, right? I mean, how many times might we think, or maybe not us, but other people in our life, <laughs> might think like, well, maybe this is God's way of providing for me what I need or what I want, or at least what I think I need. Man, God, this is really hard to say no to. I don't know if I can say no to this. And to that, I would say, if you know God's word, then you know God's will. Can we say no to it? You bet we can. And when we resist that temptation, just like for Jesus in the wilderness, Satan has to leave. Verse 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This is one of my favorite short verses in the Bible because it carries such a profound truth. We probably know as Christians that when we are struggling with sin, when we're struggling with depression, when we are in a place of despair or discouragement, when we are suffering from significant health issues or relationship issues, we know up here where to run. Where should we run? We should run to Jesus. We should run to God's word. We should spend time in prayer. We should surround ourselves with brothers and sisters in Christ. We know that. But what we know and in putting into practice is two different things. And honestly, how many of you have ever gone, man, I'm really struggling right now and gone to God's word or gone to prayer and felt absolutely nothing? Anybody? Yeah, me too. And the reality is, is we live in a, a culture that's saturated with feelings-based theology. How I feel is how my life goes. How I feel is what's absolutely true. And the reality is, is that sometimes in our place of despair, we go to God and we don't feel like he's near. But if I know God's word, what does it tell me? It says that he is near. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, 
and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Well, that's very encouraging. Um, what, is, what does this mean? Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Well, double-mindedness is this. God, I love you, and you are the creator of the universe, and I recognize that you are Savior. And why don't you ever show up for me when I need you, and I just don't feel like you're there, and you never provide for me what I need or want? How many of you have two hands? Most of us do. This is double-mindedness. And this is important for us as Christians because you don't have to raise your hands for this, but do you ever feel that way? Like, I know this, but God, we probably all do for human. And Jesus is saying, through James, James is saying, hey, purify yourselves from double-mindedness. And the way that you do that is through what? Knowing God's word. Combating the lies that the enemy throws at you with the truth of what God has established in his scriptures. When it says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. How many of us know that Jesus is Lord? How many of us know the way that we should respond? But then we get into an argument with our spouse and everything that's not Christ-like ends up coming out. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I just saw somebody tap their spouse. <laughs> the Spirit's moving this morning. Oh, you guys are awesome. <laughs> We know what's true, but putting it into practice is something different. And the question becomes, how, Lord, how do I go from here to here? How do I take what my knowledge is and reading your word and actually applying it to my life? How do I get to a point where I can actually live out what your word says? And here's what I love about what Jesus is doing with Peter in this story is that God's grace flows through the channel of brokenness. God's grace flows through the channel of brokenness. And that brokenness doesn't come from us going, well, I guess I'm just not tall enough to reach that shelf. I guess I'm just not fast enough to win that race. Where does brokenness come from? Brokenness comes from the realization, the understanding the scales falling off our eyes that, oh my goodness, I can't do this on my own. I'm deficient, not self-sufficient. I'm deficient. And the way that Peter is being led by Jesus is just incredible. Think about if we go back to Matthew chapter 26. Jesus is telling all his disciples, he says, hey guys, you're going to trip up. You're going to fall. You're going to mess up. And here's why that's going to happen. In this case for Peter, there was prophesied that this was going to happen. And yet what Jesus does is instead of just leaving the disciples and, hey, you guys are a bunch of screw-ups and, um, you know, you're going to blow it and hopefully we can still be friends afterwards, right? Jesus says in verse 32, he says, but after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. I will go before you to Galilee. And here's what I love that Jesus is doing. Peter and all the disciples, he's not where he needs to be right now. 
And yet Jesus is looking at where he wants to take Peter and he's building into the structure to help Peter become the man that he's supposed to be in Christ. And he's not leaving him hopeless because there's no question when we look later on in this chapter, when we get to the point where Peter is actually denying Christ and then that rooster crows, what do you think is going through Peter's heart and mind? What's his mental state? What's his emotional state? What's his spiritual state? Oh, he must be at the brink of death, despairing life. And yet what Christ is doing here, what Jesus is doing with Peter, is he's pointing him to the resurrection. Look what he says in verse 32. After I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. And here's the beauty of what Jesus is teaching Peter and teaching us. When we find ourselves in places of despair and sorrow and depression and anxiety and all of these things that plague both the world and the church, Jesus is pointing us where? To the resurrection of Jesus Christ in which the church has hope but the world has not. God's grace flows through the channel of brokenness. Galatians 2.20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Peter also needs to die with Christ. His flesh needs to be put to death. He needs to experience a self-dying so that in his self-dying, what gets raised back up? It's Jesus in his life. It's not self-sufficiency, Peter. It's Christ in him that now lives by faith. And we all know that Peter's response in verse 33 isn't the appropriate response, but we're not going to beat Peter up too much. We'll just beat ourselves up instead. Verse 33 says this, Peter answered and said to him, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Now, how many of you think you might have had a similar response? I think I probably would have, right? Being with Jesus for all that time, loving him as much as Peter probably loved him. Do you believe that Peter's sincere in what he's saying? Do you believe he's genuine? Yeah, we see that, right? We get to that point where they're in the garden, and who's the first one swinging the sword? It's Peter. He's a terrible swordsman, misses the head, cuts off the ear. But he's ready. He's prepared. But he's missing the heart of what God has called him to. And here's what I know about what we see in Peter and what I even see in myself, is that pride leads to a mindset of swing harder. Pride leads to a mindset of swing harder. Um, I can remember back when I was in Little League and Little League was not a good time for me. Um, baseball was not my sport. I liked hitting things, but I couldn't hit the ball, so there was nobody to hit. And I remember I struck out all the time, and I got in this habit of throwing the bat. And one time I threw the bat, and I missed the fence, and it just went over the fence. And then my mom grabbed me by the shirt collar and took me out of the dugout, and that was the end of baseball as we know it. 
But why was I getting so frustrated? What would cause me so much anger to chuck the bat over the fence? Well, it was because every time I struck out, when I got up the next time, what did I want to do? I just wanted to try harder. I just wanted to try harder. And we get on this treadmill of life where we go, oh, God, I'm so sorry. I can't believe I did that again. Listen, I'm going to do better this time. I'm not going to do that ever again. And then what? And then we strike out again. We go, God, I'm so sorry. Oh, oh, I, I'm not going to do that. Like this time, I'm not going to do it again. And what do we do? Oh, and it gets worse and worse for us. Not just the sin, but how we beat ourselves up about the sin. Now let's go back to what Jesus instituted, even though he knew his disciples were going to betray him. He invites them to dinner. He sits down with them and he celebrates the Passover meal. And he says, hey, I'm going to give myself for you. And all you have to do is receive it. You don't have to earn it by merit. You don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to swing harder. You don't have to yell louder, which is the next one here. Pride leads to a mindset of yell louder. Like, and Jesus just says, listen, I give you my grace. And in brokenness, that's when you can receive it. By recognizing that that treadmill of, I'm just going to try harder. I'm just going to yell louder. I'm going to be more vocal. I'm going to be a stronger leader by doing these things. Or the third one that I have on there, I'll prove my worth. I'll prove my worth. I'll show people that I have earned this title. Or I'm the best dad on the planet. Or I'm the best husband in the world. Or whatever it is. And we get in this endless cycle of trying to earn but we never could. And at the end of the day, here's what's happening with Peter. Here's what's happening with me. Here's probably what's happening with you. Is that self-sufficiency denies Jesus' lordship. Self-sufficiency denies Jesus' lordship. Now, this is maybe hard to fathom and a pretty, pretty good punch in the gut. But think about what, what's going on for Peter. This isn't even, this conversation we're having, this section of scripture, isn't even Peter denying Jesus those three times. And yet, what is Jesus telling Peter he's doing right now? You're denying me. Look at what's going on. Jesus tells Peter, hey, this is what's going to happen. And it's going to happen because scripture says so. And Peter goes, no, it's not. <laughs> and we laugh about it. But how often have we read scripture or heard God's voice? And we go, I know what's true, but I'm not doing it your way. I'm not doing it that way. And we do that. We may not think through it. We may not intentionally do it. Sometimes we just flat out rebel against God. But a lot of times I think it's unintentional. And yet it's our sinfulness. It's our nature of the flesh that causes us to be self-sufficient. And in our self-sufficiency, we end up denying Jesus' lordship in our life. Because when we say, I'm going to do it my way, whose lordship are we submitting to? Our own. What we want. Now here's what I love. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17 and 19. Peter is writing this later in his life when he's been broken. 
and experience God's grace and his growing in spiritual maturity through his brokenness and not his self-sufficiency. Look at what he says. He says, if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, uh, when it comes to our works, if God judged us on our works, how are we doing? Not so good. Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. What is Peter referring to in regards to our stay here? Our stay on earth, our life here on earth, and we are to conduct ourselves in fear. That's not fear like uh, God's going to strike me with lightning, so I just walk around ducking everywhere I go. No, it's the type of fear that goes, oh, I just want to do well for my dad because I love him so much and he loves me so much. I don't want to disappoint him. That kind of fear. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Notice what Peter is writing here. He says, listen, you weren't redeemed. You weren't rescued. You weren't saved by the corruptible things of this world. Not by how much money you make, not by what a good person you are, not how much you give to the church, not how you dress, not how you look. All of those things pass away. You weren't redeemed by those things. You were redeemed by what? The precious blood of Christ. The precious blood of Christ. And this is where Jesus is leading Peter. Peter doesn't know it yet. Peter isn't receiving yet, but Jesus is investing in his life to lead him to where he needs to be. When we think about the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John, they're pretty much all the same in regards to what they say. But again, Luke gives us additional insight, and we get some additional insight of what's actually going on beneath the surface with Peter, with Jesus, and also with the enemy, Satan. In Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 34, Scripture says this, And the Lord, meaning Jesus, said to Simon, or Peter, Indeed, Peter, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. What's going on behind the scenes that's not on the surface level? There is a spiritual battle at hand. And might I encourage you to know this. The spiritual battle comes long before the earthly battle. And your earthly battles aren't because you're, you're a bad follower of Jesus. It's just, it's the way that it's manifest in which we end up seeing the earthly battles. But make no mistake, there is a spiritual battle waging war for our souls all the time. Think about our neighbors or our community. Do we want to see people come to Christ? Then why is it so difficult for them to come to Christ? It makes sense to us. Why doesn't it make sense to others? Because why? Because there is a spiritual battle and war raging for people's souls in which there is a literal enemy trying to keep people from Jesus. And you know what tools he uses? Just swing harder. Just yell louder. Prove yourself. Think about how Satan does that with Jesus. If you are the son of God, then that's how each of his temptations start in Matthew chapter four, Matthew chapter three. If you are the son of God, then prove it. 
And it's the same tactics that he uses against us. Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Then Jesus says, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But then Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. And then Jesus said, Peter, the rooster shall crow this day before you deny three times that you know me. You can't fight spiritual battles by human effort. You can't fight spiritual battles by human effort. We know from Ephesians chapter 6, it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up what? The whole armor of God. The whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. God does not equip us with carnal weapons to fight spiritual warfare. He gives us his armor. He gives us his spirit. He gives us his character. And it begins in the brokenness of understanding that God's grace is sufficient and we are not for the purpose of transforming us into someone that is humble. What is Jesus trying to teach Peter? What is Jesus trying to teach us? And here's what I believe he's trying to teach us. The transformation begins in the heart, not in the will. Transformation begins in the heart and not in the will. And this is a lousy example. I'm just going to say it before I even give it to you because it's silly, but it just was a part of my life, so I'll give it to you. I loved football growing up. Like, loved it. Slept with a helmet on and a ball in my arms. Like, not, not joking. It was pathetic. It was really bad. But I loved it since I was a kid. And it drove me to work really hard and to be in the weight room on Christmas Day and to watch extra film. And because I loved it so much, I ended up pouring into football. Now, football is a bad example because what happened with football in my life? It went bye-bye. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> It did go bye-bye because it's a perishable thing and you can only play for so long and you can only be so good and at the end of the day, I wasn't that good. <laughs> but because I had a love and a passion, it drove me then to willingly and humbly seek out what can I do to get better? Not because I need to prove myself, but because I love this. It's joy-filling. And is your walk with Jesus Christ the same? Do you love him so much that you don't have to try harder to earn his approval, but instead because of out of your love and out of your recognition of, hey, I'm broken, I'm sinful, I'm in need of a savior. And yes, Lord, I want to follow you in any way that I possibly can. Humility is not something we do. It's who Christ is transforming us to be. 
If we have been put to death, if I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, then what am I clothed in? It's the humility of Christ. Now, this doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. It's a process. There's probably some areas that many of you can look back on in your life and go, wow, God has really humbled me in these areas, and he's really needing to work on me in these areas. But it's something that he's transforming us to be. It's not about just doing things, becoming more humble by the actions or the task list that we have. It becomes part of our DNA, this resurrected DNA in which we belong to Christ. And what I love is Jesus gives this parable in Luke 18 to kind of describe the difference between someone who thinks they're humble and then someone who's actually humble. Luke 18 verse 9 says this, Jesus spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. This would be the religious leaders of Jesus' day. He said, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, just at surface level, and we, we all know this, but who's the more holy in this case? The Pharisee, right? Um, they knew the law. They actually applied themselves to the letter of the law. But we know from Jesus' teachings and his interactions with them that oftentimes they were missing the heart, which is what matters to God. Verse 11 says, the Pharisee stood up and prayed thus with himself. That's probably a clue right there. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Now, this seems a little preposterous and far-fetched in terms of like, gosh, what a jerk. What a self-righteous pig. I would never pray a prayer like that. And in your right mind, we don't pray prayers like that. But here's often what happens. Things aren't going the way that we want them to. We're suffering from something that we don't want to or we feel like we don't deserve. And how fast our prayers can shift to, God, why are you doing this to me? I've done, and then what do we do? We give the list. I've given this much. I did this for my neighbor. I've gone to church my whole life. It's not fair that they're getting married and I'm not. And we start using our own merit to justify why God owes us something. And what I love about what Jesus is teaching in this parable is that he says about the tax collector in verse 13, the tax collector standing afar off, meaning he wouldn't even come near the altar would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That was it. That was his prayer. And Jesus says this, I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. What did the tax collector have? that the Pharisee didn't in this parable. Humility. humility. And that humility came from where? His heart, a brokenness. A brokenness to go, oh, God, I'm such a sinful person. I desperately need you. I, I have nothing to bring and to show you of how I could be made right in your eyes. 
I'm just a sinful person. And Jesus goes, I can work with that. I can begin with brokenness and begin to clothe you in humility. And then in humility, oh, as you receive my grace, watch the character of Christ flourish in your life. Watch Jesus be resurrected in those areas of your life that have been dead. Now Peter answered and said to him, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you that this night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. We know that later on in the story, this comes true. And Jesus isn't adding insult to injury. He's just displaying his sovereignty. He's reminding Peter, I know what's going to happen. And it's not just, I told you so. It's, you can trust me when I speak to you. You think Peter thought differently about when Jesus spoke to him on the shore of Galilee after his resurrection. If you go to the end of John, there's this amazing scene in which Peter, James, John, a lot of them have all gone back to fishing. They just don't know what else to do. And there's Jesus standing on the shore. And when Peter recognizes who he is, what does he do? says he throws his tunic on he jumps out of the boat into the water gets to the shore sopping wet and it says Jesus had made a fire and some bread and some fish and he invites them to come and sit down and you just get this picture Peter's sitting there soaking wet and Jesus is probably just looking at him and Peter's like oh no we're gonna have to talk about this aren't we And it's one of those awkward moments, whether you're, you've been there with your parents or with a boss or you're, you are a parent, you have to have that talk with your kid or your dog, depending on where they are in your life. Um, we, we sit there and we're like, oh, this is going to hurt so bad. I don't want to have to deal with this. I don't want to have to wrestle with this. And here's why. Because when we actually wrestle with it and we get to where we're supposed to be, we realize that we're what? We're broken. And that's a really uncomfortable place to be. It's not a place we like to sit very long. It's not something we want to admit to. And it just pains us to go, oh, I'm not all that. I'm not enough. I'm not my savior. I can't fix this. I'm broken. And Jesus doesn't let Peter off the hook, and yet he's loving at the same time, right? There they are sitting there, and I'm sure the other disciples are like, oh gosh, this is so awkward. Who's going to speak first? And Jesus goes, Peter, do you agape me? Do you love me? And Peter goes, I like you. He uses a different word, phileo. And Jesus goes, Peter, do you agape me? Do you love me? And Peter goes, I I, I like you. Why won't Peter say, I love you? Because he's broken and understands, I don't know if I can hold to what I said and I love you, but I definitely like you a lot. (laughs) (laughs) And here's what I love that Jesus is revealing and that Peter's showing in his brokenness is before it was, I'll die for you, I'll go to prison with you, let's go, let's go to battle, I'm your boy, we can do this. And then he blows it. And he's broken. And now he's humbled to the point where he goes, I want so bad to say that I love you. Because I do. 
but I also know myself and I'm capable of not loving you. So I think stopping at like is probably a good place. Do you see the difference in Peter's responses? Back to Matthew 26. Assuredly, I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And Peter is the leader of the group. It then says, and so said all the disciples. They all take the same approach. And here's the hard thing. They meant it. They were sincere. In their own minds, they were prepared and ready to go to battle for Jesus. But they were missing what the battle actually was. Jesus didn't need the saving. Who did? It was them. And when we become our own savior or the savior for other people, we have placed ourselves in a very unhealthy position that God desires to fulfill, not us. And I imagine as Jesus had that conversation later with Peter at the shore, here's what he was doing in Peter's life. Here's where he was leading him to. A humble heart receives instruction. A humble heart receives instruction. Because in a perfect Disney world, here's what would have happened. Jesus says, hey, you're going to deny me. And Peter goes, no, I'm not, never. And Jesus says, yeah, you really are. And Peter goes, oh, my goodness. No, I, okay, what can I do? Tell me, how can I make this right? How can I humbly sit at your feet? That would be the Disney version, right? That doesn't come without brokenness and then being clothed in the humility of Christ so that when we start getting instruction from others, we're actually able to receive it. Um, One of the things that I really appreciate about the relationship that I get to have with Pastor Dave is in between services, whether he's preaching or I'm preaching, we go sit in his office and we ask each other this question, do you want feedback? And the answer is, yes. (laughs) And we give each other feedback. And the reason why we do is because then we're sharpening one another. Then we're being built and we're building one another. And this is what Christ is doing with Peter. Is he's building. And he does that through instruction. And all of us know, instruction isn't always pleasurable. Instruction isn't always fun. Instruction can be tedious. It can be frustrating. It can be a little bit humiliating. And yet when we receive good and right instruction, we grow as men and women of God. This is what God's word does for us. And this is what... God's community, his church does for us when we're pointing people back to the word of God. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 7 says this, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. No amens in this service. Shocked. Okay. And then Peter speaks to all people. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with what? Humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Don't miss this. God resists the proud, but gives grace to who? The humble. Here's what happens when we're self-sufficient. 
we give ourselves grace? No, we're the worst. How many of you beat yourself up worse than anybody does? Probably most of us do. Because when we're self-sufficient and we're trying to swing harder, we're trying to yell louder, we're trying to prove our worth and we mess up, oh, we kick ourselves in the pants. And we allow the lies of the enemy to go, oh, if you don't get this right, you're worthless, you're a piece of trash, you're all of these things. And there's no grace. Where does grace come from? Well, it comes from Christ. And the only way that we receive grace is through a humble heart. And the only way we receive a humble heart is by the brokenness that Jesus reveals to us of, wow, I just can't do this on my own. I actually have need for a savior. And then think about when you mess up now. Yes, it's still painful. Yes, it's frustrating. But who does God give grace to? The humble. It's a promise. If you know his word, then you know his will. And his will for your life when you mess up is to give you what? Is to give you grace. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.